Well, good morning, <clears throat> church. It's, uh, you know, I watch these videos and uh, it makes me feel a little nostalgic. It makes me feel a little sad. Um, just recognizing that uh, so many of our children are, are growing up and we're not having an opportunity to, to see them on a regular basis. And I have to tell you, um, one of the nice things about you not being here is that um, I feel like I can just totally sing out. Um, there are very few people here. You see most of them up on, on the platform. And it made me sort of long and anticipate that day when we can actually gather together safely and sing. And one of the things that we want TCC to be is just a singing church because a singing church is a worshiping church. It's a, it's a, a church that praises God. And, uh, and so I can't wait until we can uh, join our hearts and our voices uh, together and, and sing songs of worship to God. And wasn't that, that children's spotlight was so good today. Uh, Samuel reading Samuel. I love it. Just absolutely nailed it. I love that. Hit Goliath right between the eyes. Right between the eyes. Like he repeated it for emphasis or something like that. It was awesome. And I love the end of it. And that's the end of Goliath. Of course, that's the story of David and Goliath that we're going to look at a little bit this morning actually a lot. It's where we'll land uh, this morning, and those verses that Cohen and Josie read for us was just really a small portion um, of this story that is covered in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. There, there are 58 verses dedicated to uh, telling this story in the life of David. And if you're either just joining us today, it should be obvious to you already that we are studying the life of David, which is covered in First and Second Samuel, and discovering his everyday faith, and then really seeking to discover how we ourselves will uh, live this out. Now, I always am a little bit reluctant to refer to some of these narratives as a story. Because I'm concerned at times that we might uh, take that to interpret it to mean that it's like a myth or a fable, some legend that's been passed down, rather than the um, real event that it is that takes place in real time with real people and in real places. Now, technically, the books of First and Second Samuel are called historical narrative. And what makes historical narrative so interesting is that it's uh, often very dramatic. Um, it's exciting to read at times. The events that are going on and discovering what's going on raises lots of questions for us sometimes as well. Uh, but certainly they're memorable. And perhaps the most memorable and maybe the greatest of all stories, especially children's uh, stories, is the story of David and Goliath. <clears throat> it's familiar, no doubt. Maybe a bit too familiar. You know, we may know it best as a, as a children's story. I uh, discovered even in my own preparation this week that, that I've never actually preached a message on uh, 1 Samuel 17. Over the time, and if you've heard messages about this, and particularly maybe in Sunday school, um, it does get sanitized a little bit. I mean, you can't miss the sling and the stones. I mean, those are always there, and ultimately the, the victory and, and the triumph. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to look at a passage like this and, and to try to apply it practically. Like, what are the principles we can learn? What are the lessons we can learn for our lives? 
when in fact um, it's much more theological than we might understand, might, might at first appreciate. But theological shouldn't scare us. Theological just means that it gives us a, a, a framework, a biblical framework with which to view um, the activities and the actions that take place here. And the writer, in fact, goes into great detail. I already mentioned the 58 verses, and I want to say to you that it's absolutely interesting and fascinating, and I think because there's so much detail, it just underscores the importance of this passage for us even today. Now, I don't have the time to read it. That's why we just selected a portion of it, but I really want to encourage you, find like 10 minutes today to just sit down and read it. 1 Samuel 17. If you're familiar with it, I know that there are going to be little nuggets that you're going to, you're going to just uh, um, glean from it and appreciate. And maybe if you've never read it, to read it in its full contents, context would be um, a great exercise. But there's so much happening here in this passage. I have to admit that I found it um, almost a little overwhelming. I found myself struggling with actually how to approach this. And I admit to feeling uh, very inadequate in order to do it actual justice this morning. And part of it, is, part of the reason is, is I simply feel like I can't get into some of the great details and the nuggets that are found throughout it, although that is very tempting. But we do have limited time this morning. But I know inevitably I'll probably spend more time on less important things and less time on more important things. Um, but hopefully... Uh, you will discover the word that God has for you today and what you need to hear today. And the lesson that I hope to really draw out of all of this is really just the keys to David's uh, success. What was the, the secret ultimately of his success? Because ultimately this is a story of great failure and great success, of defeat and victory. And I suspect that we might even be discovered or surprised to discover one of the key underlying messages in the passage. Now, we can't approach this without addressing the problem of the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines were a perennial problem for the Israelites. They posed a constant threat. This takes place during the Iron Age, and there's wars, and there's hostilities, and there's brutality, and and sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that. 1 Samuel chapter 4 uh, records one battle in which the Israelites lost about 4,000 soldiers, and by lost, I mean killed. And then there was another battle with the Philistines, and again, Israel was defeated. And in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 4, it describes this result. It says, the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured. <clears throat> I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I'm sort of picturing some of those scenes in like Lord of the Rings or that kind of um, just hand-to-hand combat that is just, uh, at, at times, just so brutal and so, so violent. Now Saul, as, um, oh, so the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The Philistines ultimately take the Ark away from the Israelites, which wasn't a very wise thing because as a result, they ended up with suffering plagues. Uh, then there are other skirmishes that we read about. And then ultimately here in chapter 17, there is another battle, another confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines. And Saul, as we've already discovered, was a disaster as the king of Israel. 
he failed to obey the clear commands of God. So God anointed David as king, but he doesn't immediately remove Saul from his throne. And in chapter 16, the previous two messages in this series covered those events. And first, Samuel anoints David as the new king, but only his family is ultimately present and is aware of what's happened. And secondly, David ends up serving or working for the disgraced King Saul. Now, incidentally, if you read all of chapter 17, you may wonder why it appears at times that Saul seems to not really know much about David. I mean, how is that even possible if in chapter 16 he was already serving Saul? Well, a simple answer that I read, uh, and this makes sense to me, and so I'm just going to run with it, is that the writer simply got ahead of himself in chapter 16, and then he kind of goes back and records the event, this this confrontation between David and Goliath, that really put David in the spotlight and ultimately introduced him to Saul. So, namely, this confrontation with Goliath. Anyway, I love how the writer sets the scene and describes the geography of of the battle lines. The confrontation takes place, he says, in the valley of Elah. Now, you could almost picture this, can't you? The Philistines are up on one side of the valley, the Israelites on the other. Neither are actually attacking each other because if either of them were to advance, it would actually become a disadvantage uh, to them because they're basically now just at a stalemate. And you can picture where there's two mountains and a valley in between them that ultimately there might be a brook or a stream that collects the, the rainwaters as it comes down uh, from the sides of the mountain. And it's in this brook, ultimately, then, that we find David later kneeling and selecting the stones. Now, verses 4 through 7 introduce us to Goliath. And what we know about Goliath is that he's a monster of a man, and he's described as the Philistines' champion. Uh, you know, they're Connor McDavid, almost, like somebody who's just head and shoulders above everyone else. And in Saul's case, that was literally true. But this word champion literally means to stand between. And it describes Goliath there as being over nine feet tall. In fact, uh, translating the original Hebrew, six cubits and one span, into more familiar units of measurement, we discover that he's actually nine feet, nine inches tall, so almost ten feet tall, or three meters. And not only is he massive, his armor and weapons are impressive too. And again, this is where you just need to read it for yourself. I won't get into all that detail, but you'll probably find it very interesting because of just the sheer weight of this for this monster of a man. Now, in verses 8 through 11, Goliath speaks. Now, maybe just saying speaks is almost a little too soft, because although he uses words, he's really taunting the Israelites. And he says to them, don't don't you have someone, anyone, who will fight me? Of course they didn't. And him, in his massive stature, bellowing out these taunts, totally frightened and dismayed the Israelites. Now, there's a a bit of irony that's unfolding here, and that's that the Israelites had actually chosen Saul back in chapters 8 and 9 
because they wanted a king who would save them. They wanted a champion for themselves. And Saul, he was a big man himself, not as huge as Goliath, but he did stand, it's described as head and shoulders above everyone else. And so if anyone should have fought Goliath, it was Saul. But Saul, as impressive as he was, might have been a bit of a coward himself. And so he didn't step up and he didn't step in when they needed him most. He was there, but not present. Well, verses 12 to 15 introduce us then to David's family. Now, David, as the writer is unfolding that he's not present there yet with them, but his three older brothers, we learned that they were soldiers in uh, Saul's army. And they're here on the front lines of the battle. They're there in the valley of Elah. And they're on the front lines of the battle. And David, as we may remember, was now the youngest of eight children of Jesse. Now, verse 16, be easy just to pass over, but it, it gives a really important detail here. Now, this scene of this stalemate, these two armies on either side of the valley, um, are, is, is in our minds, and we have to picture Goliath day after day, morning and evening, it says, coming out and taunting the Israelite army, and he does this for 40 days. There's just one of those little nuggets, the significance of 40 days in, in, in the Scriptures. Anyways, one day, David's father, Jesse, sends David with some food, um, cheese sandwiches actually, for his brothers. Kind of like an 11th century BC skip the dishes delivery or Uber Eats. And so he sends some food and he says, just check up on them, see how they're doing, and then come and report back to me. We should just stop and think about what's happening here now and just the hand of God on the events of our lives. Think about the providence of God here at play. Because if David had not, um, have, if David hadn't stepped out, um, he never would have been, been, uh, been sent. He wouldn't have stepped into the scene. But it was Jesse who asked him to go. And so he goes and becomes part of the unfolding story of God in the life of the Israelites and the life of David. So David gets to the Israelite camp just as the army was taking up their battle positions with shouts and battle cries. I, I sort of picture a scene from Braveheart, right? You know, except it's, you know, Israel forever. Problem is, they're just words. Because even though they might say something with their lips, their hearts weren't in it. They, they had no confidence because they found themselves face to face with the Philistines again and particular Goliath. And so David runs right out to the front lines. He wants to greet his brothers. And just at that time, Goliath does what he's been doing for almost six weeks now. And he comes out and taunts them again. And this time, David hears him for himself. Now, at this point, I find myself picturing David just kind of standing alone there uh, at this point. Because 
The Israelite army, we're told, were so terrified that, again, they just simply ran away. They fell back to safer positions. And this had gone on day after day for 40 days. And Saul was so desperate to have someone step up that he actually offered a reward um, for the person who could, you know, kill Goliath, including not just money, but also his daughter in marriage. And the entire family of that man who killed Goliath would be exempt from paying taxes forever. That sounds like a pretty good deal. And yet, no one volunteered. No one stepped up. Morale was at an all-time low. And I wonder if the army looked over at Saul and maybe quietly wondered why he never stepped up. Now, David clarifies for himself, you know, is this really true? Is this what the reward's going to be? But make no mistake, his motivation is not the reward itself. Because at this point, he cannot believe that the Israelite army would allow this enemy to continue to not only defy them, but to defy God as well. And that ultimately upsets David to no end. And so in verse 26, he asks, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine or this pagan Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, Saul hears about David's question, and so he calls for a meeting with David. And this is now where we come to the action of David. Because David has seen and heard enough. He steps up and volunteers to fight Goliath on behalf of the Israelite army. And in verse 32, David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And so David volunteers himself. And God's answer to Goliath's challenge, Choose one of your men and have him come down against me, is none other than David, this little shepherd boy. But what Goliath doesn't know is that David is, in fact, uniquely qualified. He is God's anointed. But Saul doesn't know this either. (laughs) And so his response is expected. Verse 33 says, you know, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. David, you can't do it. He, he's, he's experienced. He's a warrior. He's been like that since his early days. You're just a little shepherd boy. You may be ruddy and handsome, but David, you're still just a kid. You're never able, you're not going to be able to fight Goliath. He'll get killed. And this is ultimately how Goliath then taunts David as well. He sneers at him. You you sense that he's almost filled with contempt for David. He roars at David, verse 43. Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? That was such an interesting phrase, but I, I didn't actually research it. But it, just on the surface, it, it stuck, struck out to me that I think Goliath is actually maybe insulting David's stature a little bit. Maybe he was small. Maybe he was thin, like a stick. <laughs> and Goliath had enough strength to just snap him like a little twig. And it seems that Goliath is just feeling so disrespected and insulted 
I mean, at least give me somebody that's going to be a challenge. And so he's angry, and he curses David by the names of his God, and he calls him over, and he yells at him that he's going to ultimately be bird and animal food. And so you probably know what happens next. David, with a sling and one stone, drops Goliath. A direct hit to the only place that he was vulnerable, his forehead, or as like the kids like to say it, right between the eyes. David had no sword of his own, so he runs over quickly and he grabs Goliath's sword and he finishes him off. And in that moment, the future king of Israel has arrived. Now, as much as this is a story of triumph and success, it also highlights the failure of the Israelites. Because this whole event, up until David arrived and did what he did, it was an epic failure on the part of the Israelites. Judges 3 and 4 tells us that the Philistines, along with other enemies, were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. And if you read through the Judges, you'll discover that they promptly failed that test. Because in verse 7 already, Judges 3 says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. They had other gods. And judge after judge, this cycle is repeated. The Israelites did evil. God disciplines them, usually by making them subject to other nations. Then a judge would rise up and deliver them, and they would live ultimately in peace only to come around and eventually do evil in the eyes of the Lord again and again and again. And by doing evil, they dishonored the Lord. There was zero concern for his name or ultimately how their behavior would reflect on God. Instead of praise and honor and love, there was disobedience, failure. We fail as well when we are disobedient. Failure at times can be used by God to to discipline us, to humble us, to teach us. But what made David ultimately so upset was that Goliath ridiculed and mocked the Israelites, and as a result, God. And they did nothing about it. And day after day, this taunting and this mocking went on for these 40 days. There was absolutely no response from the Israelite army or from Saul the king. And the fact is they were just terrified, overcome with fear. And fear makes us run. Verse 24, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. And so they didn't do anything about Goliath, and because they didn't do anything about it, he probably became even bigger in their eyes. And eventually, they're just totally dismayed and discouraged. They lost any heart for the battle that they once had. And so you have this broken, defeated, deflated army. And when your spirit is broken, you start to blame or criticize others. Isn't this what David's oldest brother, Eliab, did? 
I mean, he's, he's probably aware of some of his own failures. He's frustrated by the whole situation. And so he gets easily angered, and he misjudges David's motives. Maybe even his own jealousy is triggered now, since he was overlooked by God when Samuel was anointing the next king. And so he says to David, what are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? In other words, you don't have much responsibility, but shouldn't you rather be back there? And then he states what he thinks is true about David in verse 28. And he says, I know, like he, he comes across as very certain and, and, and um, confident in this. He says, I know about your pride and your deceit. Wow. You see, so often when we ourselves fail, we assume bad motives and intentions of others. We judge, and we usually misjudge as well. And the real issue with failure is ultimately not that it reflects on me, but rather who we are as God's people and whom we serve, namely the living God. And that is David's issue. Because ultimately, it was God's honor that was at stake. And he was passionate about worshiping God. Just read through the Psalms. And in particular, the one Psalm that came to mind was Psalm 34, where he just praises God endlessly for delivering him from his troubles. And so what we discover here, in fact, are the secrets of success. Because what David reveals to us is that there is an answer to failure. There, there are secrets of success here, and that secret is simply this, faith in God. And David's faith was rooted in the one true God. He saw that the failure of the Israelite army is that their behavior did not ultimately reflect God's character. Because what do we know about God and, and, and who he is? And even the, the words that David uses when he talks to Goliath, when he talks to, his, um, um, to, to Saul, he says things like, well, he's, he's the living God. But if they believe that, they certainly didn't act like that because they, they acted like he was a dead God. He, he was the almighty God. And yet, they clearly gave the impression that he was powerless. He was a promise-keeping God. But they acted like he didn't care. He was a God and is a God who is able to deliver, to rescue them. But they didn't expect him to. And David clearly recognized that the battle was ultimately not with Goliath. It wasn't physical. It was a spiritual battle. And since the battle is spiritual, the response isn't physical. The right response is a response of faith. It's interesting, isn't it, that throughout the account, there's absolutely no mention of the Israelites' faith in God. No mention of prayer. Just of pure human response. We, we've got armor. We've got, you know, methodologies. We've got weapons of war. We've got all this, this stuff. 
but they never ever make mention of God. Do we need to be reminded today what the writer of Hebrews says? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And David's response to Goliath, I think, sums it up so well. Listen to verses 45 through 47. David says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you, you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Man, we could spend all morning just unpacking that and discovering exactly David's expression of faith in what he said to Goliath. But he makes it very clear again that this isn't a physical battle. This isn't a battle with weapons of war, of swords and spears and javelins, because he says he comes against Goliath in the name of the Lord. And the Lord's name represents all that he is, all that he has revealed himself to be. And so if we break down David's faith, we can say at least three things about it. Number one, faith focuses on who God is. You see, the Israelite soldiers, they had their eyes on Goliath. That's all they could see. And the longer they looked, the bigger he became. But not David. His eyes were on the Lord. His eyes were on the living God, not on some dead idol, not something that you can tuck under your arm and carry around with you. No, David's faith was focused on the God who speaks and is active and is at work in the world. Secondly, faith trusts in the power of God. Because He says it's the Lord who will conquer. It is the Lord who will give victory. David can't think and speak about God without realizing how powerful he is and how all the other gods are ultimately subject to him. It was God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's his power that is made perfect in our weakness. And that is the point of David. He is weak He's a little boy, but he has faith and trust in God. And so even when we are weak, we know that God is strong and that he's powerful. Thirdly, we might say that faith trusts in the promises of God. David refers to the pagan Goliath as uncircumcised. Verse 26, circumcision was a a sign of the covenant. And when you have a covenant with God, you trust him to be faithful to his promises, to his part of the covenant. And the result of this faith then is hope. 
Not despair, not being dismayed and discouraged the way the army was. Because if we know that God is a promise-keeping God, we, like David, can say unequivocally, this I know God is for me. God is for me. And God is for you. Friends, this is good news. This is, in fact, great news. Because it's a reminder to us that the battles that we face are ultimately not ours to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord, and He will give us victory. Friends, are you fighting any battles today? Remember. Remember who God is. Remember that He's powerful. Remember that He keeps His promises. It was so great when we were singing this morning, and, and I don't know if, if Adam had studied the passage enough to, to pick that song, but it was like, all your promises, all your promises are yes and amen. We can say that over and over again. I will rest in your promises. And when we sing those songs, we actually declare our faith in God. And so friends, we have a simple responsibility in all of this. And that's simply to keep our eyes on Jesus. To keep our eyes on Jesus. Reminds me of a passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to this picture that the writer paints here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, okay, Remember all the people that were even witnessing this exchange between David and Goliath and saw what happened? So we've got this great cloud of witnesses. And and it says, let us throw off everything that hinders. David didn't need the armor. He tossed it. It would hinder him. And the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Listen to this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Some translations actually say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, our champion and perfecter of faith. The one who stands between. For the joy set before him, writing about Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, that's what the Israelite army missed. But David didn't. He knew how important it was to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus And that's ultimately the secret of faith and the secret of success through every challenge, through every hardship, that when the enemy comes and he taunts us and he mocks us and he even sneers at us, we know that it is God who will rescue us. And this wasn't something that David only knew in theory. It was his reality. It was his own experience. And so he testified to this when he actually told Saul how he had to fight off lions and bears. And then in verse 37 adds, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Friends, putting faith in God doesn't mean we sit back 
and do absolutely nothing. But we recognize that ultimately it's not our battle to fight. It's the Lord's. But he uses our gifts and our skills and our, and, and our participation in it. I mean, I, 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 I picture um, David as a little shepherd boy practicing with his sling. I mean, him taking out Goliath wasn't just a miracle. He was just really good at it. And maybe he picked up five songs, five stones in, in case he missed with the first or second one. But he maybe set things up on a tree stump and took, took aim with his sling. He practiced that. And then when the lions and bears came, he, he hand-to-hand fought them. But he says that it wasn't ultimately him who fought him. It was the Lord who protected him. The Lord who was faithful to his promises. And the point is, he was with David in the shepherd's field. And he's now going to be with him in the valley of the battle. Friends, there's so much more here that we could say. Um, I'm just going to say this. This is going to just probably raise a whole bunch of questions, but I'm going to wrap it up with this. Just some concluding thoughts. By faith, we put on the armor of God. Um, We don't need armor prepared for, for battle like shields and literally helmets and swords and things to cover our feet and our shins and everything else. We, we need the armor of God that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 6, where we put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, where our feet are ready to share about who God is, share the gospel, what he's done. We hold up the shield of faith to extinguish those flaming darts that the, that the enemy shoots at us. We put on the helmet of salvation. We use the sword of the Spirit, which isn't a literal sword, it's the Word of God. There's so much that could be said about the armor and David decide. I, I, sorry, I love the scene. Uh, it's, it's almost hysterical when you kind of think about it because we already know that Saul is a big man and David's a little boy and Samuel or Saul decides that he's going to give him his armor. And so you have this, this scene where he's putting on this armor. And what I imagined was like some little kid getting into his dad's hockey bag, you know, and putting the helmet on. And it's like falling over his eyes and he's putting on his hockey pants. They don't come to the kind of the, the mid-thigh level. They go past the knees. And so he's trying to walk around in this stuff and he stumbles and he falls. He says, I, don't, I can't, I can't, I don't need this. Because ultimately he had the armor of God at his disposal. And one more point, it's by faith that we trust in Jesus to be our deliverer, our rescuer, our champion. See, God's deliverance ultimately comes to his people through his anointed one. And that's ultimately what the story of David and Goliath points to. It points to Jesus, who's not you see, the, the, the story here, so often we, we want to identify with David and be like David and fight our, you know, uh, you know have our slingshot of faith and all, all these different things. But 
the story is actually that we're not called to be like David, but rather that we have in Jesus a David. And we have a king who triumphs. Another one who is anointed. The Messiah, who is our champion. Friends, may we never forget that Jesus paid the price. He stood in our place. He paid the price for sin. When the cross, he endured. He's our deliverer. He's our rescuer. He fights our battles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of David and how ultimately when we discover in the Old Testament how really everything points to Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that as we close our service this morning, that we would be reminded of who we are. That we are your children. You are our Father. And as our Father, you protect us and you have promises. And your power is made available to us. And ultimately, Father, I pray that you give us today the confidence that David had when he could say, this I know, this I am certain of, This I am confident in, that God is for me. You're not against us. You're for us. You help us in all of the things that we may face, and we know that we're facing a lot right now. Father, I pray that you would help us take our eyes off of our circumstances, take our eyes off of our problems, and fix them on Jesus.